Thank you, Sam, for leading today, planning as well. It's a very word-centered, gospel-rich service. Thankful for you, brother, in planning that for us. It was a it was a relief to have at least that taken off of the plate for today. So thank you, brother. Pastor Travis, I want to commend his sermon to you from last week. He preached Psalm 56. And as I said on social media, which makes it the truth, it was perhaps your best sermon. Yeah. I should qualify that I've heard. There's, you've preached more than I've ever been able to hear because I have choir on Wednesday nights, but it was well done, brother. And not just because, um, and not because of the presentation, but because it so well reflected the shape, the emphases, the central proposition of the biblical text, which is always our goal when we gather for worship and to preach the word, is that our sermons would not be our sermons at all, but they would in turn, instead actually, help to communicate what God has said already in his word, lest we try to thrust upon it any meaning of our own. So brother, great job pulling from the text and telling us what God had to say for us through Psalm 56. Today we continue, and the Psalms were in Psalm 57. It's a very similar Psalm to last week, a Psalm of trust last week, and again, a Psalm of trust this week. As we begin, I want to read to you the text from Psalm 57, if you'll turn there with me. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. 
inerrant, infallible, sufficient. Father, now as we submit ourselves to the preaching of your word for the next few moments, we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to your word, that we might hear the wonderful truth of who you are, who we are, what you have done, how we might ought to respond to your word. Lord, glorify you and be sanctified through the preaching of your word. Let it be the word that is brought to our attention in the explanation, the exposition of your word, and nothing more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as has often been the case, I, this is completely by accident, but I seem to keep getting the Psalms that are just so well structured like a hymn. I don't know if Pastor Lewis is planning that or not, but what we have here in this Psalm is a beautiful hymn. Two stanzas and each stanza sharing a common refrain. In our first stanza, which we find in verses one through four, we're going to learn that the psalmist trusts in the steadfast love of God for deliverance from his oppressors. And then there's this refrain in verse number five, where ultimately the psalmist desires that God be acknowledged and worshiped. And then stanza two begins in verse six. And in this stanza, the psalmist expresses his steadfast trust in God and vows to praise him because of his steadfast love. And then the final refrain in verse 11, ultimately the psalmist again desires that God be acknowledged and worshiped. What I want to communicate to you today, what I believe this text is telling us is this. Those who trust in the steadfast love of God desire the exaltation and acknowledgement of God as the outcome of their oppression. Those who trust in the steadfast love of God desire the exaltation and acknowledgement of God as the outcome of their oppression. And if you wrote that down, I want to be sure that you know when I say the acknowledgement of God, I mean that God be acknowledged. Not that we receive acknowledgement of God, for I would have worded that from God. But in this case, the acknowledgement of, the exaltation of God. And so now as we walk through the text together, we shall see this laid out. Let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 57. From the very beginning, the psalmist, in this case David, begins with a plea to God. It's interesting how earlier in the psalm setting that uh, Sam, almost called you Pastor Sam, that Sam introduced to us, even in that hymn, he repeated these phrases, just like the psalmist repeats them here in the text. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. So twice the psalmist David says in requests of God to be merciful to him, revealing to us that indeed David is going through something in which he needs relief. He needs relief. And so he offers this plea for mercy. But listen to what he says next as he qualifies, as he describes the trust that he has amidst this plea for mercy. He says, for in you my soul takes refuge. Immediately following 
his plea for mercy, he goes straight to trust and confidence and reliance upon God. For in you my soul takes refuge. Not only is he saying, hey, I currently have refuge in the Lord, but he's also saying that he will have refuge. Listen to the next verse. In the shadow of your, wing, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And so not only does David here express his trust in the Lord in the moment, but he's saying even moving forward, that refuge that he finds in the Lord will continue until the storm passes by. Listen to this imagery here in the, in the verse. He says, in the shadow of your wings, he will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. What does that draw to your attention this morning? When you think of shadow of the wings, is it a bird flying in the sky who casts a shadow upon the ground? Or is it more like, like a bird in the nest with her chicklets and is wrapping her wing around that little baby that he or she might be protected from any storms of destruction? So true is God in the lives of those who trust in him. He keeps us in the shadow of his wings that we might be protected. Even when the storms are coming, even when we experience certain storms, we can trust in God in whose wings we are in the shadow of. And in verse 2, he says, I cry out to God most high. In the beginning of the psalm, he says, I be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. But now he elevates that to, I cry out to not just God, but God most high. The psalmist acknowledges that God is the highest supreme being authority, and it is in him whom we can take confidence in our own refuge. So he cries out to God most high. Why? Listen to what it says as the psalm continues, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So not only is David acknowledging that God is the highest authority in his life, he's also acknowledging that it is God who works and God who wills for the intended purpose. Listen, I cry out to God most high, David says, to God who fulfills He's not taking credit for any work in whatever the outcome might be. He is crediting God with the work to fulfill. Fulfill what? His purpose. God's purpose for David. David acknowledges that it is God who works and God who purposes and wills for what's going to take place to take place. And notice the confidence that David continues to share here in the next verse. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Did you hear those three phrases repeated back to back? He will. He will. God will. Confidence is what is characterizing David's countenance in this moment. He recognizes that it is God and God alone who will accomplish his work. In verse 3, it says, He will send from where? From heaven. And do what? Save me. I want you to remember that phrase, from heaven and save me. These words are going to come up again, but in a different direction a little bit later in our text. He will put to shame 
him who tramples on me. Now we're beginning to get a little bit of a picture of what exactly is happening to David. In the beginning, all we got was a cry for mercy. God, be merciful to me. And then again in verse 2, I cry out to God most high. We still haven't heard for what reason does does David desire mercy. Now we're beginning to see it in verse 3. He will put to shame, that is God. God will put to shame him who tramples on me. So now we're learning that, that David is not just experiencing suffering, but he's experiencing suffering at the hand of an oppressor. But notice his confidence He will put to shame, God will put to shame him who tramples on me. This oppressor intended to shame David, but instead the outcome of the oppressor will be his own undoing. God will sin. Here's how God's going to accomplish it. God will, again, the word send, send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That phrase is so important to this text. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Throughout this psalm, we're going to see emphasize the steadfastness, the the faithfulness, the steadfast love of God on behalf of those who trust in him. It's a beautiful relationship. God sending us his steadfast love and us responding in steadfast faith, which we'll see in the second half of our psalm in a moment. And then David further tells tells of the story here in in stanza, I'm sorry, verse number four. He says, my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows. We're beginning to get a picture of exactly how they are oppressing David. It says, whose tongues are sharp swords. So we know that these attacks, this oppression that's coming upon David is coming from the mouths of his enemies. It's a verbal attack. We don't know if it's slander or if it's lies or if it's, or if it's something else. Insults thrown at him, false accusations, but he is under attack but through it all, a great trust in God. Look at these verses together, two, three, and four. As he cries out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me, as he expresses this wonderful trust, expecting God to send from heaven his faithful, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, Think about for a moment, just a point of application for us in the room today. Think about for a moment, what this means for us? How do we see ourselves as people who have benefited from that which was sent from God from heaven as a picture of steadfast love? Does anything come to your mind? I sure hope so. Those of us gathered in this room who claim to be followers of Christ, having trusted in his redemptive work on the cross, his burial, his death, his death, his burial, his resurrection, having trusted in that, having been redeemed, we too have been recipients of that that which was sent from heaven, his son, Jesus Christ. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1.20. As we think about here, David reflecting on the faithfulness of God and on how salvation was sent to him from heaven and how he placed his trust in that salvation, I'm reminded of how it is Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of the promises of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 
a familiar passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. They are disappointed. He wasn't able to visit them. And he was telling them, I intended to come visit you. I just was not able to. I wanted to. But know that my yes meant yes, even though I wasn't able to. But then he transitions away from himself into Christ and says in verse 20, 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God find their what? Yes, in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. As we think on the promise here that David was trusting in, this, this promise of steadfast love being sent to save David from heaven, that is, of all places, we too can reflect upon the promises of God knowing that it, it is in Christ in whom we find our yes and amen. David is experiencing suffering at the hands of an oppressor. And so here he wants salvation. He's confident of God sending that salvation. As we think of the same parallels in our own lives, we, would be, we want to caution against saying, oh, well, the oppression that we have is our own sin and we need salvation from sin. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Is that what's taking place in David's life? No, we gotta be careful about that parallel. But it is true that even amidst our own oppression and suffering in this life, and by suffering, I wanna say the same suffering that David experiences, that suffering which is thrust upon us, apart from our own doing, apart from our will, and by the hands of an enemy. Which brothers and sisters, I can assure you, in our day we will continue to see more and more if you're not seeing it already. You will suffer at the hands of a godless people. What that suffering looks like, I don't know. Verbal attacks as such as David was, was receiving, physical attacks perhaps, as, as things progress, who knows. But one thing is true in them all. Because Christ has delivered us from our sins, saved us, sent his son from heaven, even when we suffer, suffer at the hands of the enemy, we can trust in the redemptive work that we have in Christ because the suffering is only a light, momentary affliction. David searched for a temporary relief. In this, in this passage, at least, he was looking for a temporary relief from those who were attacking him. But we have the benefit, as does those, as do those who have placed their trust in Christ, of not a temporary relief from oppression, but an eternal relief from oppression that comes from a sinful people. And brothers and sisters, let us not imagine for a moment that we too are not a sinful people. We are the Christ has redeemed us, reconciled us to God, to one another. And so while our sin has been taken away from us, removed, while we have been washed of that sin, we still have this nature in which we battle against daily. But we have the sure confidence of eternal life as we walk with God. Look to how David concludes this first stanza with a refrain. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Interesting what's happening here. He cries out to mercy to God for relief. He expresses his sure confidence in that relief, that salvation that comes from heaven. He describes the oppressor, and then his next response is, be exalted, O God, 
Let your glory be over all the earth. That could seem strange at first. But the paradigm that David is providing for you and for me in this text is exactly the attitude we ought to have in every situation in life. Why does he want relief? Simply for relief? Does he want God to be merciful, to send from heaven salvation, to show his steadfast love? Does he want that just for his own benefit that he might be relieved of what he is suffering? Well, sure, he wants that, but he has a greater desire in that salvation. And that salvation demonstrates who God is. It exalts the Lord, but not only does it demonstrate who God is, it makes him known. And so David here is wanting God to be merciful, to send his salvation from heaven, not just for his own benefit, but that all of the world might know who Christ, who God is. His ultimate desire is the exaltation, hence the words be exalted, and the acknowledgement, hence the words let your glory be over all the earth of God. You notice here how he begins verse 5. He says, be exalted, O God. Interesting, be exalted. Sounds like something that God Most High would be. And so he's addressing God Most High And he is requesting that God continue to be exalted for his own glory. As we think about God being exalted, him being made known through situations such as this, I want to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 7 for a moment. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to look there and then we're going to look in Ephesians afterwards for an Old Testament and a New Testament parallel. In Exodus, we're specifically looking at ways in which God's work was served for the purpose of making him known. Now, we know what happens in Exodus, especially here at the beginning, right? Israel is in captivity. They are slaves in Egypt. They need deliverance. Ultimately, what is the purpose of their deliverance? Their own deliverance? No, that's a wonderful byproduct. But the purpose of their deliverance is for the works of the Lord to be made known. Look at verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians, here's the outcome. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The purpose of the Exodus was that God may be made known. Look down at verse 12, same chapter, verse 12. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That's not the verse. Chapter 14, verse 4. There's another verse in chapter 7. We won't take time to look for it, but it talks about God being made known. We see it again in Exodus 14, verse 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then further down, verse 18. 
And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. One more example. Exodus chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are, that you grumble against us. So here we see this thread throughout Exodus. As God is working to deliver his people from captivity, what is he ultimately doing it for? The same thing that David desires as the outcome of his own suffering at the hand of oppressors. The glory of God to be made known. Let your glory, as David puts it in verse 5 of Psalm 57, let your glory be over all the earth. So that was, if we keep turning through the Old Testament, prophecy book after prophecy, all the narratives, we'll continue to see this common theme of God delivering his people for his own glory. In Ephesians 1, we see this theme carried over into the New Testament. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Ephesians 1. So what is the thing we're looking at at the moment? We're looking at how God works for the purpose of displaying his own glory. And that's not to say we're not a, we don't receive a huge benefit from this but it's intended to keep our eyes focused on the purpose of all things. Ephesians 1, starting verse 3. I'll emphasize it to draw it to your attention. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And why did he do this? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's keep going. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might what? be to the praise of his glory. We're still not done. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. So as we look through this passage in Ephesians 1 and see the gospel so beautifully laid out for us, frequent references to the will of the Lord to save his people and to see the purpose behind his saving work to be to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace. We too today, having been redeemed by Christ, can say that no, our first benefit, the first result, the first 
uh, first impact that the gospel has in our life is not just keeping us out of hell and getting us into heaven, but is purposed for the glory of God to the praise of his glorious grace. So brothers and sisters, redeemed by the blood of Christ, know that your redemption has taken place, that God might be glorified, that he might be exalted above the heavens, and that his glory might fill the earth, so that when the people see people saved from their sin, they might know that it was the Lord who accomplished the work. Look at the second stanza now. Psalm, back to Psalm 57. Begins in verse 6. David returns now to describing a little bit about what his oppressors have done. And in verse 6, he, he, he describes an action. And then a result that followed that action. And then another action. And then another result. Look at the contrast here in these results. The first action is, they set a net for my steps. The result was trouble for David. My soul was bowed down. Look at the next action. They dug a pit in my way. Now look who the trouble is for. Not David. But they have fallen into it themselves. Ultimately, the work of the oppressor will be their own undoing. Will we experience trouble at the hands of oppressors? Absolutely. Will we receive final trouble at the hand of oppressors? If we have trusted in Christ, absolutely not. Notice the verbs here. My soul, what? Was bowed down. Look at the last line in verse 6. But they, what? Have fallen into it themselves. What that means is that was, it's something that happened in the past and no longer is the current situation. But for them, they have fallen. It means they presently are experiencing that. They did it in the past and it continues now. They have fallen into it themselves. But for David, as he's reflecting on and placing his confidence in God, writing this, he's already writing as if he has been delivered. Which fuels him into this next section of praise that we find in verses 7 through 10. Notice this word here at the beginning of verse 7. David says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It's interesting to note when David repeats himself, Have mercy on me, O God. Or he says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Earlier he said, Send from heaven, send out. He said, Send multiple times. Here he's saying, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. So far in this psalm, what have we seen that is steadfast? The love of God. Interesting. In the first stanza, David reflects on the steadfast love of God and how now we see in the second stanza that steadfast love of God has caused him to have a steadfast faith and trust. It's interesting how, how God deals with his people and how that fuels us on, it shapes us to take on these same attitudes, these same characteristics that God shares with his people. I remind you of something I said in a Sunday school recently. We become what 
we worship. We worship the steadfast God who is, who is steadfast in his love. Then we too become steadfast in our faith and our trust. Here in verse 7, after these twofold statement of be, his heart being steadfast, he says, in response, I will sing and make melody. I will sing and make melody. So he says how he's going to respond now with his steadfast heart being saved, with the confidence of it being saved, even though it hadn't happened yet, how he will respond. He will sing and make melody. Often when we see these two words used together, sing and make melody, make melody means to use musical instruments. You'll even see this in Colossians, make melody with your hearts to God. So this is combining singing and using instruments. And so we see this all throughout the Psalms, sing and make melody. And what will he do as he sings and he makes melody? He says in verse eight, awake my glory, awake O harp and lyre. It's interesting that he has earlier in the Psalm addressed God. He says, be merciful to me, God, be merciful to me. In verse five, he, he tells the Lord, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And now here in verse seven, he is calling himself up to worship, calling even the instruments that surround him to worship the Lord, to awake so that he might awake the dawn. What does it mean to awake the dawn? As, as David calls to his own spirit to awake and to prepare for worship, as he calls the instruments to be ready to play for that worship, what does it mean now for him to say, I will awake the dawn? It means to say that he prioritizes his response of worship to be that which initiates the day. His immediate response, not a delayed response, oh, I will do that later in the day, but his immediate response was to worship God, to exalt the Lord because of his, David's, steadfast trust in a steadfast God. I feel the need to remind us as we walk through this psalm, this salvation, this deliverance has not happened yet. But for David, it's as good as done already because of his confidence in God. And look how it escalates into verse Nine, it's not enough for David to, to privately express this worship to God. He says in verse nine, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Where? Among the peoples. Interesting, even among the peoples is not enough for David. He says, I will sing praises to you among the nations. He desires for the worship of God to be something that all people, all nations see, witness, and observe that God may be made known, that he may be exalted, that he may be acknowledged. And in verse 10, he comes back to the steadfast love of the Lord he says, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. What do we remember about the direction of his steadfast love and faithfulness earlier? It was sent from the heavens. It was sent to David. And now David in response desires the steadfast love of the Lord to be, to be the content, the substance of his worship so that all of heaven, all of earth, all of the clouds as it goes up to the clouds here in the half, second half of verse 10. He wants that steadfast love 
to be known in all places, in the same way that it came from heaven to be sent back up to heaven and to be covered over all of creation, that people might see who God is, what he has done, even before he has done it. In the final verse, Psalm 57, verse 11, the same refrain that we saw in verse 5. He says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. As we see David's desire stated one more time here at the end of the psalm, I think it'd be beneficial if we look at the psalm as a whole and just think on David's David's statements of trust throughout the entire psalm, we see a mixture of present and future tense verbs saying that he trusts now and that his trust will continue. The psalmist has a present and a future trust and hope. Begin with me in verse 1. He says, For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Verse 3, he will send, he will put to shame, God will send. Verse 5, be exalted, O God. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast, my heart is steadfast, I will sing, I will awake the dawn, I will give thanks to you, I will sing praises to you. For, and here's the why, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let this be the exhortation for us today that in all things, particularly when we face suffering at the hands of an enemy, and by an enemy, I don't mean a personal enemy, I mean an enemy of God. When we face suffering at the hands of an enemy of God, let us be able to turn and say, God be exalted, may we be saved, and may the salvation that you send from heaven be a demonstration of your glory to everyone. But I must say this, you're going to face, you're going to face suffering in this life in which in this life people will not necessarily see the glory of God in that. But one thing is certain. In eternity, all will see. Even those who never trust in God and find their eternity in hell, even they will see the glory of God, but they will not benefit from it. It is too late. And today for us, as we know that God will be glorified one way or the other, let us rejoice In all things, I'm reminded of James. He says, rejoice in suffering. Knowing, us doing that, knowing that the glory of God will eventually be made known. But remember, there are those who will see the glory of God having not trusted, and for them it is eternal judgment. And then for those who trust in Christ, it is eternal salvation. So, if you're not a believer in this room, let me encourage you. Trust in Christ's redemptive work that it might be true and said of you that God sent salvation to you from heaven and for the purpose of his own glory. Don't leave having trusted, having not trusted in Christ.
trust in him. He has given us steadfast love. Let us return with a steadfast trust, not for payment, but for knowing that it is without any payment whatsoever that he has redeemed us. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to spend time in your word throughout it, from cover to cover. We see your steadfastness. Lord, even as we hold your Old Testament in our hands and we see your your steadfast love even in creation. But Lord, we quickly fell in our sin. And Lord, one book after another in the Old Testament is evidence of our continual run away from you, your people running away from you, not trusting in the steadfast love of God, but you continuing time and time again to exhibit your steadfast love in your people's lives. Lord, we see that ultimately fulfilled in the one who is our yes and amen, that is Christ, who gave his life on the cross, was buried and was raised on the third day, proclaiming victory over sin and death. What, what a beautiful picture, the most beautiful picture of the steadfastness of your love, God. I pray And for those of us in this room who have trusted in that steadfastness, that we continue to respond with steadfast faith and trust ourselves. That as things happen in our lives, whether they are seemingly insignificant or whether they are great, Lord, our response is always the same. Lord, that you would be exalted, that your glory would be made known in all the earth. Lord, let this be the position, the posture of our minds and our hearts as we approach serving and living you each day. As we continue to reflect for just a moment, I want to encourage you, believer in the room, reflect on the steadfast love of God and your appropriate response to his steadfastness. Would you respond to him now? unbeliever, you've not yet trusted in Christ. If you're in this room, you're an unbeliever, I trust you have indeed seen the steadfastness of God in the work of his people. Would you let that be a testimony to you that you might trust, that you might respond with steadfast trust? It's a trust of no payment to you at all, but trust in your heart knowing that Christ died for your sins, that Christ was buried according to the scriptures and he was raised on the third day. Trust in his work. Repent of your sin. Be saved, not just to escape heaven, but that you might be serving in the purpose of bringing glory to God because of his work in our lives through Christ. In just a moment, I'll be down front. Sam will lead us in song, a song of response as we 
is we respond by saying that God is indeed our refuge in whom we hide ourselves. And as we sing in response, I'll be down front. If you'd like to talk about what it means to trust in Christ, I'd be glad to speak with you about that. You're also welcome to speak to anyone in this room now or even later. We're always available to talk about this. Or secondly, perhaps you have a great prayer need that you'd like to be prayed for. Be available for that as well. Pastor Travis also. Or thirdly, maybe you've been attending, you've been visiting with us, and you are a believer, but you have not uh, found a church home. Would like to speak with one of, one of us about making Woodlawn your church home. We would love to have that conversation with you. Feel free to talk to either one of us as we sing. Father, now.